Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day is by Aristotle. The aim of art is not to produce the outward appearance of things, but their inner significance. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirshton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you to move forward. On this show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the illustrator Bianca Dudik Mandity and the story of Vasily Kandinsky. Announcements. So I have a bunch of art classes coming up um, that you are welcome to join me for. I've got a plein air workshop in August uh, in Indianapolis. I've got Victorian flower painting, the secret language of symbols at the Art and Soul Retreat. Um, what you want to do if you are interested in painting with me in the future is sign up for my newsletter. It comes out once a month. And with that, not only will you get updates on when the latest podcasts have been released, but you will also be entered to win a painting in November. I do that every November, and it is open only to people who are members of my newsletter list. So go to my website, azirfineart.com. I'd love to hear from you and uh, have you join my art community. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Bianca. Bianca Dudik Mandity is a contemporary illustrator and digital artist who loves altering and adding layers to photographs. She currently works as the studio chair of painting and drawing, printmaking, and textile arts at the Indianapolis Art Center with me. You can find out more about Bianca's work at www.biancandm.com. So that's B I. A-N-C-A-N-D-M.com. Welcome, Bianca. Thanks, Addie. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. So what's the story of how you became an artist? Well, um, I, I don't ever really remember a time when I wasn't an artist. I think my earliest memory or my second earliest memory, I guess, aside from standing up in my crib, is of coloring and drawing. So I think I probably was born this way. <laughs> um, but I studied music as well. Okay. So when I went to college, I studied performance art. So I studied both music and art. And I did a lot of work that sort of focused on uh, intersection between the two mediums. And then when I got out of graduate school, I sort of fell into illustration as a job because you can't make a lot of money in performance art and I needed to eat. And it just sort of snowballed from there. Okay. Can you explain synesthesia and how it affects your artwork and life? 
So synesthesia is a mixing of the senses. And it's, they believe it's genetic. It tends to run in families. They used to think that it was uh, an abnormality, something that had gone wrong in the brain, that the senses mm. intermixed. But in the last couple of years, scientists have started figuring out they think it's actually a switch that doesn't get switched off or can be easily switched on and off in some people's brains. And the thinking for this has to do with they've looked at patients that have suffered traumatic brain injury and will randomly develop synesthesia. So they think that the potential is there in all humans. It's just that in a certain segment of the population, we actually have the ability to leave those switches flipped on. Uh, so for me, I have several different forms. The earliest form I remember is uh, gender synesthesia, which is where all objects in the universe have a gender for me. And it doesn't break down by object type. So not all chairs are girls, not all sofas are boys. Some chairs are girls, some chairs are boys. And then I also have uh, color sound synesthesia. So sounds have colors and colors have sounds. Uh, I have a form of personification synesthesia. So letters and numbers have distinct personalities to me. And then uh, I have a form of temporal space synesthesia, which is that when I think of time, I actually see it in three-dimensional space around me. Okay. Okay. Well, so, and this leaves us with so many questions or me with so many questions. Um, because just trying to understand, you know, how are you perceiving things? Um, my first question is going back to the gender and, you know, you look at this chair I'm sitting on and maybe it's male or female, but um, do you, have you seen any correlation between what languages, you know, the Romance languages like French, where the chair does have a gender, um, it, it, are there any parallels there? I think it's an easy way for people to understand mm -hmm. the concept if I say, well, the chair is a girl. But unlike in a romance language where the gender is fixed, for me, the gender is not necessarily fixed. And it gets confusing for people because they think, well, that's a girly chair. We have these ideas of like what makes something feminine or masculine okay. uh, in our society. So uh, Baroque, brocade chair, people would think, oh, that's girly. Um, but often those kinds of chairs actually read as masculine to me. So I have never been able to really figure out, and I was in a study in college, the scientists really couldn't figure out either what it was in my brain that triggers the masculine or feminine in me. I do know it doesn't have anything to do with what we think of as stereotypes for gender or uh, even common linguistic, you know, like rolling pin, which is something that women traditionally use to bake, is actually masculine to me, okay. is, a, is an example I always use. So something that you would think of as part of a woman's traditional domain doesn't read as feminine to me. I look at it and see that it's a boy, if that okay. makes sense. So. Okay. Hmm. Um. And, and when we think of things as being gendered, I, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is the color pink is for girls, which is so in lately and my little nieces. And then there's, um, you know, blue is for boys, which of course, as you know, 300 years ago, it was flipped. The pink was for boys and the blue was for girls. And um, which I think is fascinating because people who don't know that history 
think it's the part of our innate, uh, you know, who we are and, and all of that, but it's not. It's cultured and it's learned. Um, do you see genders in colors or any thoughts on the color pink? <laughs> uh, yeah, the color pink is actually masculine a lot of the times for me, depending on the shade. Color was the first time. That was when I knew I was different. Um, I was a kid and I was coloring with my mother and I was putting my we were putting the crayons away in the box, and I was at that age where I didn't like the genders to be mixed. So I had the girls and the boy crayons separated because I didn't want them together because boys had – I was at that, you know, boys have cooties okay. stage. And I got very upset because my mother was putting the crayons away wrong, and I said to her <laughs> – that's a boy crayon. You can't, you can't put that there. And my mother, who was this very staunch feminist, got very upset because she thought I was saying this color can only be used by boys. <laughs> and so she starts, you know, honey, girls can wear and use any color that, you know, she starts on that like very pro-feminist. And I'm saying, well, yeah, of course I understand that, but that color is a, and we're having this sort of argument back and forth. And all of a sudden, I realize that she doesn't see it, that she doesn't understand at all, that it's something that I see that she didn't. It was actually quite frightening for me because up until that point, I just sort of assumed everyone saw things as having gender. Um, I, I didn't know that I was different. That was the first moment I knew I was different. So a lot of times colors don't break down the way that people think they do gender-wise. Interesting. Interesting. And speaking to how people are different, I, I find it fascinating to think about, okay, somebody who is colorblind, how they're perceiving everything around us differently. And even, and we talked about this once, how you know the color of my wall is green, but somebody else might be perceiving it slightly differently than I am, but I'm never going to know how they how their perspective is different from mine and um so I, I can try right but th there's always going to be a certain disconnect thoughts on that yeah I think my experience of the world is a more extreme version mm -hmm. of that and the gender thing is a really good example of that because there's been a lot of conversations lately about the nature of gender in people and gender fluidity and all, you know, what makes us masculine or feminine. And when the conversations first started happening, I've always found those conversations a little confusing. And I realized it's because for me, in the entirety of my existence, gender has had nothing to do with any kind of orientation or even mannerisms or things that people like to do. Oftentimes, the gender I see in people is not their physical gender. So I have friends that are female, but when I meet them initially, I look at them and I think, boy, right? Or the reverse is also true. I know boys that I look at and think, girl. And I've, since I've always been this way, I never really linked gender to physicality or sexual orientation. It has nothing to do with any of that or even any kind of characteristics that I can put my finger on to say, this is why this person reads as feminine. 
this is why this person reads as masculine. Right. And anymore, it's background noise in my head. I don't even think about it consciously any more than I think most people think about gender in a conscious. Like if you're walking through a mall, you don't pass people and think like boy, boy, girl, girl. So my interaction even with people is slightly different. Okay. My husband has said to me once that sometimes he can tell because the way that I communicate slightly shifts oh. um, that I will speak to women in a softer way and I will speak to men in a more direct way. So he will know sometimes if he's never met a person before when he hears me speak to them, he, sometimes we will walk away and he will say, so they're a girl to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even realize I'm doing it. I think it's very subtle, but we've known each other long enough that he sees the slight subtle shift in communication style that I use yeah. that I don't even am aware I'm doing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And how does this then translate to the language of art? So um, what I'm getting at is when you create art or when you look at Kandinsky's art, and maybe you can talk about that for a moment, how are the colors and the things that you're perceiving um, altered or enhanced by synesthesia? So sometimes it's really wonderful. I there There are times that the universe is really beautiful for me. I When there's fresh fallen snow and the world is sort of white, it sounds like part of Mahler's fourth symphony to me. And I think it's because the tones I hear, I actually hear in the symphony as well. So I've learned to associate the mm -hmm. two. Uh, in the fall, I hear it sort of sounds like Prokofiev when the leaves start changing. Um, so there are times when it's really, really beautiful and Kandinsky, who was also synesthetic, my experience in seeing his pieces in person have been very powerful for me. Uh, there's one in particular that sounds like a chorus of voices singing in this really beautiful harmony. And the first time I saw it in a museum, I started crying because it was this very overwhelming thing because I'm looking at this painting and I'm hearing it and it's really beautiful and wonderful. And when I create, I need my colors to be in harmony with each other unless I'm trying to create discord of some kind. So sometimes I play with that sort of tonality in my color sense. I don't know that people necessarily pick up on it, but I, I know it's there. So it's a secondary language for me in my art that Color is so very important to me, and how I use color speaks to what I'm hearing in it. So it directly impacts my art, and I don't know how to separate out the two in any way. And and I've gotten from you too that sometimes it can be overwhelming. I guess I'm alluding too to how you know, you oftentimes you love grays, and you've told me at, at home you have a lot of gray tones, and perhaps my house is way too much for you. I don't know, but like <laughs> you know, just um, how do you handle it if it's if it's too overwhelming? Do you just have to walk away sometimes? Yeah, there are times when I hear things that are painful. I'll look at a piece of art and the way the color is, it's it's like the sound of gears grinding or nails on the chalkboard. It's very painful and I basically will shut my eyes or walk away or like try to cut off the sensory input. Large crowds can be difficult because there's a lot of uncontrolled noise happening. 
So if you imagine sort of looking at a strobe light that's constantly changing colors around you that you have no control over, that can be a little overwhelming. People with synesthesia tend to get a lot of migraines and headaches. So I avoid really crowded places or if I can help it, I will take headphones with me because if I can control the sound and listen to something familiar, it, the color also becomes a form of background noise then. So if it's a piece I know very well, and I listen to a lot of Philip Glass, which is minimalist and has very long, subtle tonal changes, which means it's long stretches of the same color for me. So it's more soothing. And then I do also gravitate towards a lot of gray or desaturated colors um, or, or black because they don't sound as loud. They're, they're softer. So it's more of a whisper sound in the brain. So that also makes it easier to shuttle to the background so that I'm not being distracted or having to constantly filter out this secondary sensory information from what's happening around me. Mm. Interesting. So what's your favorite medium? I know you do a lot on your iPad lately. Maybe you can talk about that. I do enjoy digital art. That's a more recent phenomenon, and I think it's a practicality thing. Because of my job, I can't carry my entire studio <laughs> with me, and I have not had as much time to make art as I would like. So being able to paint and draw on my iPad has been sort of a natural solution to that because I can have lots of colors, and I have a paintbrush tool that's like a fiber optic tool that will actually paint on the surface of the iPad like a real brush would. It's not exactly the same, but it's a good substitute for being able to be at home in my studio and still be able to make art. But I'd say my favorite medium is still any kind of really, I guess, dry medium, colored pencils, markers. Um, I enjoy rendering, drawing, illustrating. So that is really, if I'm going to sit down to work, it's going to be some form of illustration normally for me. So that's my favorite. What advice would you give to your younger artist self? That's a, that's a tough one. I guess I would say not to fight who you are as an artist. I, I spend a lot of time measuring myself against other artists. I think that's a normal thing to do. You go and you learn by copying and studying other people. And my style is sort of Edward Gorey meets the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took me a really long time to actually put my finger on that that's what it was. I do a lot of odd sort of gothic children um, that are wide-eyed and also sort of strangely violent. Um, it wasn't until recently I was talking to a friend about when I was a kid, the two programs I was allowed to watch was Sesame Street and then Mystery on PBS. And I was obsessed with the opening sequence in Mystery, which was done by Edward Gorey. And the friend of mine just looked at me and was like, oh my gosh, your artwork makes so much sense to me because you are Edward Gorey meets the Muppets. And I was like, holy cow, you're right. Um, but I fought that for a really long time because it didn't feel serious. It, it didn't feel classical. You know, I, I worried that it wasn't correct, that it was somehow less. 
than people who did traditional portraiture, oil painting, or landscapes, none of which I was ever really attracted to as an artist. I enjoy that work. I like going and seeing that work um, from other artists. I don't enjoy making that work in my own time. And that was a long fight for me to sort of come to a place where I was just going to say, okay, this is what I'm doing and that's okay. Um, so that's probably the best advice I'd give to myself is to not fight it and to just sort of make art how you're going to make art. Yeah. And it, it reminds me too of how we all come into it with this sense of, oh, or I shouldn't say we all. Oftentimes people will go into the art world thinking there's a right way, there's a wrong way. And with my students lately, I've noticed there's a lot of push and pull where if I tell them, you could do this or you could do that, it, they, then they don't know what to do and there's analysis paralysis. But really there is no right or wrong. It's just a matter of making choices and going with the flow. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I will tell my students that if they're going to violate a rule that they have to do so consciously. Yes. So mm -hmm. I think part of it is because when you first start learning, it's very technical. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of rules that we give students to help them because boundaries can be very helpful when you're starting out. And it's important to know the fundamental rules, I think, technically speaking. But at a certain point, you have to start setting those aside in a conscious way, not just like, will, I think, willy-nilly, but you have to start making conscious choices about for your own voice. And that, I think, is a tough one for people because they like the rules and they want it to be right. And it's difficult to say to them, well, I don't know what's right. And I think what's tougher and what is on the, on the other side of that is that what we're asking people to do and what I ask of myself to do is to do something that's emotionally true, not necessarily technically or environmentally true. So the tree might be blue in my painting or illustration, even though there's no such thing as a blue tree in our environment, but it's emotionally true. And that I think is a little harder to do because it leaves you very vulnerable. Mm. And it, when you're asking students to make choices like that, we're in essence asking them to be vulnerable in their art and not follow rules. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do as an artist, as a teacher, and I would think as a student as well. But I think the best work comes out of sort of emotional truth and vulnerability. So even though it's frightening, I joke, and I'm sure you've heard me say this, like I, I make people go to the places that frighten them because that's where the best work comes from. And I really believe that's true. My my best work comes from the places that frighten me. So. What's the main message you are trying to convey with your work then? You know, I'm hearing you, the best stuff's coming from the frightening place. Are you trying to convey a frightening quality? I don't think so. What do you think? No, I, I think I'm trying to convey my own emotions, which can be frightening at times, or mm. to play with the darker aspects of humanity. A lot of my artwork deals with, I draw a lot of, children, like I said, that are doing odd or semi-violent things, um, because that's very jarring, I think. this We have a lot of notions about 
what human beings are, what children are, notions of innocence. And I, I work a lot with images of girls in particular, although recently I've started using more boys. But for a long time, I was sort of obsessed with this idea of like little girls are supposed to be sweet and they wear their little dresses and they're very polite and they play with tea parties and this sort of notion of female innocence, which then as you age at some point, you have to discard. But I feel like we're still sort of held to that at the same time. We're not supposed to grow up to be until we're mothers. And then that's a different form of innocence in a way, I think. Um, but I, I always struggled with that as a girl. I, I didn't want to be a typical girl. I liked to play outside and get dirty. And when I was really young, I wanted to be a professional baseball player for a while. And, <laughs> and I, I guess it's the, the contradictions I see in myself that I really want to highlight in my work. And I often do it in ways that are simultaneously humorous, but also slightly disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I use a lot of language in my work, even in my abstract stuff, there's language buried in there. I use Morse code in my abstract paintings, mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of people don't know. Well, now they will, but <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while, I have, I have a particular patron that bought a piece of mine and he, he his mother um, grew up an army brat. And I guess she was looking at it and was like, that looks like Morse code in there. Like she found the code in it and he contacted me and asked me about it. So there's always language of some kind buried in my art as well. Um, so there's some sort of messaging, but sometimes the language is not necessarily truthful. It's part of it. It's sort of a play on is this real? Is this not real? Am I being serious? Am I making a joke? Right. Okay. I really want my audience to have that moment of like, wait, what, what, you know, when they look at my work to mm -hmm. force them to sort of reevaluate how they think about the world and themselves. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking about this innocence and an innocent character being violent. And I almost want to say that sometimes the innocent child is more likely to be violent than the grown adult who can perhaps empathize better with other people or other things. So I'm thinking of, you know, a three-year-old picking up a dog and just almost strangling it or, you know, picking up a grasshopper and he's crushed. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what you're saying? I think that's part of it, but I think... Because I like to look at the darker aspects of humanity, mm -hmm. but in a way that I think is approachable, um, Goya dealt with the darker aspects of humanity, but in a way that I've often found unapproachable and very difficult to process. Right. Um, I think there are pieces inside of all of us that are dark and light. Mm -hmm. And I choose to confront often that darkness with innocence alongside it. So I do think children have a great capacity for violence because they don't understand consequences. Um, my children in my artwork are often very adult in some ways, even though they're drawn as children, the sentiments being expressed are more adult in nature. Um, and I like that sort of discord that it forces people to sort of stop and 
you know, do it, I guess, a double take or make them slightly uncomfortable. I, I did a piece recently of a little girl in this really cute sort of Victorian bouffant dress with like a big bow in her hair and just this sort of smile on her face and in her hand is a giant double axe that's bloody and the tagline was she spoke softly so the idea is you know you look at somebody and there's this very sweet innocent cute little girl but there's more going on there than just that sort of surface innocence and I think Historically, women for a very long time were taken at this sort of face value, right? We're supposed to be this sweet, innocent, well-dressed, well-mannered, soft-spoken, you know, but we are complicated creatures. And so I choose children to sort of explore the idea of human complexity. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And for myself, I think a lot about how I'm a, I'm a fairly sweet person, right? But then... If there's something I'm not going to want to do, I'm not going to do it. And people don't, they don't quite get it until they hit that wall that they're not going to push me over. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's a push and pull. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to throw one extra question at you that I'm just, I just have this gut feeling you're going to have a great response to it. Um, so I, I think a lot about how visual art is a language that's perhaps saying what we can't say with words. You know, and then you, you've got the synesthesia going on. You've got these things going on that are perhaps difficult for you to verbally express mm -hmm. uh, to me, you know, and say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling, Addie. Um, how is visual art a language where we're using it in a way we couldn't say with words? How, how do you express things that way? I think for me, art has always been a safe space. Okay. So that's that's the first step. And I okay. think part of that is because it allows me in a very concrete way to translate my synesthesia into reality that other people can start to comprehend. So drawing little girls that do more masculine pursuits would be a good example of that because it's a girl doing a boy thing, right? So that would be an instance of that sort of gender mixing that sometimes I see. Using specific colors to have certain meanings for me symbolically, I think if you were to lay out all the work I'd ever created over time and look at the color patterns, you would start to see a very distinct language evolving with the color patterns, which would then tell you when you're feeling this way, you use this color. Okay. Um, so it allows me, I think, in many ways to sort of manifest what my experience of the world is in a very direct way to sort of show my senses in that way. The one thing I've never been able to do well and I've been playing with lately is trying to find a way to couple sound with color because that's the one part that I'm experiencing that other people don't experience when they look at my art. So there's a layer there that I think most people don't experience, which sort of saddens me. But I do think that there are so many things that you're right, we don't have the words for. And for me, color is such a visceral experience that that's 
the ultimate language for me beyond even like the imagery in it. It's the color. Okay. So that's the language I fall back on. And I think most people would have an idea of that because when we talk about our emotions, we'll say, oh, I'm feeling blue today, right? Or um, I'm green with envy, right? That's another one. Um, so I think we have some associations with color and emotions. Uh, mine are just a little more extreme <laughs> than most. But I would say that that's... That's how it's a language to me. Okay. Okay. We're to our final question. What's your favorite art book or story? So it could be, you know, a textbook that you just love and you eat up, or it could be a personal story that's happened to you. Anything? Well, I think the most influential book for me as a child was Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Um, that's, the first book I remember my mother reading to me, I know she read to me a lot, you know, like a long book, not just a storybook, but she always read to me. So we would pick books out at the library and every night she'd read a chapter. And Alice in Wonderland is the first one I really remember very clearly. And I reread it frequently. When I don't have anything else to read and I'm bored and I want to read something, I literally go pull Alice in Wonderland off the shelf and read it. And I guess my artwork was really influenced by that as well because it's a little odd and trippy and humorous. And uh, I think Alice as a heroine was also a big influence on me because again, she's sort of this sweet little girl who doesn't quite behave you know, at all throughout the book, she pretty much spends the entire book arguing with everybody <laughs> about everything, including the queen. Um, so that book, I think, was very, very influential on me. And then in my spare time, I read a lot of metaphysics of color theory books, which is kind of dry to most people. But I find a lot of the arguments that are being made from the philosophical standpoint of color theory to be quite fascinating. Often I think they're wrong, but I enjoy reading the arguments because color is such a huge part of my existence that I'm always really curious how other people are thinking about color and talking about color and arguing about color. And, okay. and can you give us a quick example of one of these metaphysical color theories that's out there right now that that for you, from your stance, you can debunk. I want to, see, I want to hear a debunk. <laughs> I want to hear a debunk. Okay, so one of the big ones is called primitivism. Okay. Which, first of all, I think is a terrible term for something. Okay. Just in general, I have problems with the terminology, but they believe that objects are inherently a color. So uh, a can of Coca-Cola is inherently red. And all of our experiences with that comes from the object. So it wouldn't matter if you were colorblind or not, the Coke can would still be red. So even though you don't, if you were colorblind and you didn't see it as red, it wouldn't matter because it's red is their argument. So they, they believe that because of the physical universe and the laws of physics, that objects are fundamentally the colors that they are. And I have problems with that argument. Okay. Is, is that stemming from the, the wavelengths that the colors are creating and they're thinking, oh, that wavelength might um, 
might uh, affect you even if you can't perceive the color. That's part of it. But I think for them as philosophers, it comes down more to almost like an argument of the nature of the soul, that it's whether it's inherently one way or another. Okay. So they would say, these objects just are this way. That is how they are. The grass is green. The sky is blue. Full stop. There is no room for deviation. And it doesn't matter if you perceive it or not. It's still there. So they're the people that would say, well, if a tree fell in the forest and you didn't see it happen, well, it still happened. It doesn't matter. That's sort of their argument with color. And I don't agree with that <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> Because from a physical standpoint, and this is an old argument, um, this is kind of a long-running argument that's been happening in philosophy of color for a while now, but they were, the primitives would always fall back on science and say, well, this is we know this to be true. And they take it a step further and say that our understanding and relationships and associations with color are also inherent. So red is angry, right? Or um, green means go, right? So whatever it is that we think about colors being good, colors being bad, colors being masculine, feminine, they sort of make an argument that this is a universal archetypal. Yes, proposition. And I think that it's pretty much been proven that that's not true. People from different cultures, because color is a language, they have different relationships with color than um, other cultures do. I think it's kind of a Western biased theory. But from a purely physics standpoint, you could take a red can of Coke and a human being and place them on a different planet with different atmospheric conditions. And the color of the can would change. So it would no longer be red and we would no longer be perceiving it as red. We'd be perceiving it as something else. So just from a purely physics standpoint, that argument is false. But I think from a larger emotional standpoint, that argument is also false. So. Okay. Okay. Well, Bianca, thanks so much for coming in. It's always fascinating to chat with you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This is fun. And now the story of Vasily Kandinsky. Vasily Kandinsky was a Russian artist who had synesthesia the ability to perceive a crossover of the senses. He perceived colors as pitches of sound. Kandinsky was born in Moscow in 1866. In the first part of his life, he studied law and economics. At age 30, however, he gave up his successful career teaching to study painting. He loved the French Impressionists and was drawn to the bright, vivid colors they produced. He settled in Germany in 1896, where he found people to be more open to his modern theories of art than in Russia. In the beginning, Kandinsky painted landscapes, but with time he focused more on painting his inner spiritual world than the outer world. Using fewer and fewer recognizable symbols, Kandinsky was one of the first artists to create abstract paintings. When he painted, he wanted to express the emotions of his soul. Kandinsky wrote about his ideas in his famous book concerning the spiritual in art. It's a great little read. I recommend it. And in it, he stated, 
That is beautiful, which is produced by the inner need, which springs from the soul. It wanted for color to reflect harmonious chord with the soul. He often listened to music to find inspiration for his paintings. Between 1922 and 1933, Kandinsky taught art at the famous Bauhaus schools in Germany until they were closed by the Nazis. As Kandinsky and many of his fellow artists fled to France, the Nazi party seized several of his paintings and exhibited them in a show that that was called Degenerate Art. The purpose of this show was to make fun of the modern art like Kandinsky's. And after the show, the artwork that had been on display was destroyed. This did not deter Kandinsky, however. Yay. He spent the last years of his life creating dynamic paintings that were inspired more by geometric shapes. Okay. So what I gleam from Kandinsky's story is that art, has this opportunity for us to really grow and expand our perception of things. And I think it helped that being a senescent, if I'm saying that correctly, um, having that increased perception of color and different perception helped him to break some boundaries and to um, create something that was dynamic and new. And really ultimately the purpose of his work was changing the purpose, you know, at the beginning of his work was to depict things that he's seeing in front of him. And then toward the end, it's gravitating more and more toward showing his inner emotions and expressing his inner emotions, which led to, of course, the German abstract expressionist movement. One of my favorite exercises to do with students is to study Kandinsky's art and then create abstract paintings inspired by music with them. So first I ask them to listen to a piece of music without painting. We just, we take a minute and we listen. And then after that, I stop the music and I ask them to select colors they feel are reflected in the music. What, um, what images are they seeing? How does, how does that color they might be selecting make them feel the same way that the colors they're hearing in the music do? And then I turn the music back on and I let them start their painting. Um, So this story and many others are available in my book, The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom. This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Annie Hurston and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.